Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, Kitchen Chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney, and I am just delighted, dear listeners, that you're joining me here in my kitchen in the Chicago suburbs. Thank you for connecting with me on Facebook, Kitchen Chat, also on Twitter at McSweeney. I love hearing from you, and I am just so grateful that you are joining me on my culinary journey where together we are discovering new tastes, trends, expanding our palate, expanding our knowledge about all the different cuisines out there. And I just love that you're part of this journey. So thank you. Well, today's guest really needs no introduction. It's just such a delightful honor, truly, to have Russ Parsons, who is the food editor of LA Times. He is also an author of two books. I can't wait to hear about this. How to Read a French French Fry and How to Pick a Peach, as well as he is an inductee in the James Beard Foundation Who's Who of Food and Beverage, along with many other award-winning uh, things as well. And so, Russ, welcome to Kitchen Chat. Oh, thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. Oh, this is fun. And it was so much fun to have met you twice. First of all, we met at IACP. In Chicago. Yes, in Chicago, the International Association of Culinary Professionals. And it was so much fun to uh, attend your lecture about uh, and panel discussion with, with Joe about trends. And I know we have lots of questions on trends to chat about. And then it was so much fun too, Russ, to uh, actually visit the LA Times building when I I was in town and to see the test kitchen there in the, the mothership. <laughs> the mothership, yes. <laughs> so I guess, first of all, there's so many questions to ask you. But first of all, if you could please provide our listeners with just a, a bit of an insight and peek into what exactly does a food editor do? <laughs> um, I'm still trying to figure that out myself 25 <laughs> years later. Um, what does a food editor do? I mean, it, it varies from day to day, and, and, and I don't think there is a template anymore. It used to be when, when I first started, uh, when I started editing the food section here, it was, it was fairly clear cut. You know, we had a print food section that we put out every week, and that's what the food editor did. He edited that, and he wrote for that, and or she, you know, um, Ruth Rachel was, was the editor before me, um, and, um, and, and, and that, was, that was kind of that. Um, that's not the way the world works anymore more in media. Our food section is now part of a weekend section, the print edition is, uh, but we do so much more online. Um, we've got a website, latimes.com slash food, that has um, all kinds of, um, in, in addition to the stories from the, from the print edition, there's all kinds of standing features on there. We've got a recipe database of more than 5,000 uh, tested recipes that we've published over the last 15 years. We've got a seasonal cooking guide. We've got restaurant guides. We've got 
all that kind of stuff. And then on top of that, we've got a we've got what's called a daily dish, which is our blog that probably has six or seven new blog posts every day, up there running down kind of uh, news in it's more newsy news in cooking and food and and restaurants. Yes, it's it's so exciting to see all of those resources online. And of course, the print edition is, you know, wonderful to, to receive as well. But yeah, there's a lot of things going on in the internet. And um, it's great. And we'll make sure listeners that we have that link uh, for you to check out some of the, the things that Russ is mentioning. Well, thank you. Oh, yeah. I mean, it used to be that it was all print, and now I'd say it's probably seventy-five uh, percent online. That is amazing how that has changed. And yep. also, I noticed that LA Times Food was a sponsor of the delightful um, culinary event Taste of LA. Can you share a little bit with the listeners about that? Sure. Uh, that's a, that is an annual event. We This was our fifth. And it, too, has changed a bit over the years. But I think for the last three years, we've kind of really found our stride on it. And what it is, is a two-day event uh, that's held over Labor Day, um, multiple sessions on each day. It's at the Paramount Studios back lot. So it's kind of like a very movie, very L.A. kind of kind of scene. And it's our chance to share with our readers and with with the the people of Southern California kind of what our vision of food in Southern California means. And mainly from a restaurant perspective for for this event. And so we've got, you know, all kinds of, you know, big name chefs. But we really try to keep it very, very focused on either uh, chefs and restaurants that are in Southern California or that are represented in Southern California. Um, and we try and do kind of the whole breadth of, of the restaurant scene. Uh, Southern California has got uh, some great fine dining restaurants. Um, but I think the real wealth of food in Southern California is at the level below that. You know, whether you're talking about mom and pop ethnic restaurants or whether you're talking about neighborhood restaurants, that's where Los Angeles really trumps, I think. And so, you know, I guess it was two years ago I noticed at the, at the, at the taste, there was one little section of it and right next door to each other, we had Providence, which is, probably the top fine dining restaurant in Southern California. Right next to it, we had the new restaurant. We had Girasol, which is the new restaurant from C.J. Jacobson, who's, who's uh, you know, familiar to everybody from Top Chef and yes. one of the kind of rising stars. And then right next to that was, was uh, Rocio's uh, Dioses de Moles, which is like a great, great little neighborhood Mexican place. And to me, that just in those three little booths, that kind of ran, covered the gamut of what makes Southern California dining such a great thing. That is just the lovely juxtaposition of flavors and, <laughs> and right, taste. and no, yes. and very democratic. You know, in, yes. the, in the small D sense, uh, very democratic. In that, you know, if you've got good food, we'll find you. And if you've got <laughs> food, we'll love you. It doesn't. You don't need to have a. You know, we 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 like the the two million dollar build outs, but we we also like the mom and pop place in Boyle Heights. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, a lot of trends, would you say, have their beginnings in California? What are some of the things you noted at the Taste of LA, but also in in your travels that um, some of the trends you're seeing both regionally, worldwide, locally, what, what are some things you're seeing? 
You know, in Southern California, everything is still, of course, very, very much farmer's market-based and ingredient-driven. Hmm. Um, and then it, it's that way in Chicago, too. I know. Right. I mean, you know, places like Blackbird. I mean, fabulous restaurants. Yes. <laughs> uh, and places that cross over, like, Rick, you know, Rick Bayless does such a, fab, such a great job with Mexican food, but it's also, you know, his sourcing is impeccable as well. Yes. I think one of the things that's really interesting that's happened here, um, you probably remember a couple of years ago, there was a huge bang in food trucks and it was chefs taking these, what had previously been kind of, we'd call them taco trucks and there still are a lot of them and selling more chef driven food out of them. And it was a way that chefs could get into the market without having to have investors. You know, they could have, if they could scrape together thirty or forty thousand dollars, they could get into a place where they could serve their food to people, as opposed to like a brick and mortar restaurant where you know, I mean, it might cost you might spend thirty or forty thousand dollars on permits. Uh, but I think the next step in that is now what we're seeing now, and that is food courts making a comeback. Oh. Um, and these aren't the old fashioned food courts, you know, with banana on a stick and sparrows and, you know, that kind of thing. There's, uh, the Grand Central Market here downtown, the Seventh and Fig downtown. Um, these are, the Seventh and Fig is a mall. Grand Central Market is a historic public market. But they've gone out and instead of going for chains, uh, they've gone out and recruited young chefs. Oh, to come wow. in and and open stands there, and and again, it's a, it, the 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 theory is that if you really want, you know, if you really love to cook and you really want to serve people your food and you really want to try and make a living doing that, here's a way that you can get in on the ground floor without having to have you know, a substantial investment because you know what happens when you've got a restaurant and, you know, you open a restaurant, and you've got investors and all of a sudden all of these silent investors are telling you that you need to have this kind of hamburger on the menu because that's right. what they like at home. And you've got a thousand different, a thousand different oars pulling you in different directions. <laughs> exactly. um, uh, but here's, here's a way that you can keep in control. And, and it's really fascinating because, you know, usually the price points are, you know, $12 and, and under. Uh, the menus are very, very limited. You know, they may have seven or eight items on the menu, but the food is really, really good. And you, people are standing in line waiting for chances. Oh, that, I, that's going to be fascinating to see that trend spread. That, yeah. And I loved the movie Chef, you know, with John uh -huh. Favreau mm -hmm. and the food truck and <laughs> kind of back to the, mm -hmm. the genesis of that. Yeah. So that's it's exciting to see an expansion like from the food truck to a food court. Oh, that'll be yeah. fun to, to look at. Well, it was so funny, Russ. I, um, was uh, reading online and some of the Facebook feeds or whatever the other day and came across this uh, trend of coffee being served with butter. I was just wondering what your thoughts are on that and if you think that is going to be one that's going to grow. Well, you know, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been writing about food for you know, an embarrassing number of years, more than 30. <laughs> and, you know, you just, you just get, you, you see these things come and go. Mm -hmm. You know, the, 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 the kind of momentary, it's like, it, it, it's like a flash fire, you know, yeah. it's like, boom, everybody's talking about it. Then boom, it's like, oh, remember, you know, like two weeks later, they're saying, oh, remember when we used to think that was a good idea? <laughs> um, and I think, I, I, I think the, the butter and coffee thing is just one of those midsummer 
we've got nothing to write about. <laughs> Let's write about this. Okay. I don't see that as have, as being a trend that has legs or one that is going to you know have any kind of a permanent impact. Oh, now do you think kale is here to stay? Well, kale's always been here to stay. It's just that most people didn't really appreciate it for what it was. I, and, 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 you know, as one of the, one of the first people to write about the whole kale salad thing, yes. um, you know, kale salads are great. Uh, are they overdone now? Well, yeah, certainly. You know, so are goat cheese beet salads. And, you know, <laughs> everything, anything that's good eventually gets saturated. And then, you know, it's, it's time in the sun passes and it becomes a classic. You know, and it, fewer the, the 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 trend seekers move on to to other dishes, but the those of us who love them will will stay with them. Uh, and do you think this comfort food trend is one that's here to stay? It seems there there's always a lot of talk about comfort food going on. I, I, you know, I never. I would love to have somebody come up with a definition of what comfort food is because, you know, if, if there's comfort food, that automatically implies that there has to be discomfort food. <laughs> and I don't think discomfort food is ever popular. Um, I mean, I've eaten enough of it, but I, 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 don't, I, don't, think, I don't think that's ever going to become a trend. I think, um, you know, I, I think, you know, like if you're talking about kinds of homey, um, starchy, all of those things that get the pheromones running so that you're feeling, you know, sleepy and delicious. Yeah, there's always going to be room for those. I mean, good Lord. I mean, <laughs> you know, how many, how many, how many revivals has macaroni and cheese had? Yes. Amen to that. <laughs> and we'll never run out of them and they're all going to be delicious because you know what? It's really, really as Kraft has demonstrated, it's really hard to screw up macaroni and cheese. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, well, what is, I have to ask, since you brought up discomfort food, what is something that has caused you discomfort in uh, your culinary journeys? Uh, bad food, food that's thoughtlessly prepared, food that's self-consciously trendy. Hmm. You know, I'm trying to think of what the current incarnation of that would be. I mean, <laughs> kale salad could be one of those. I mean, because with kale salad, you know, without getting too geeky about it, but kale is not naturally a salad green. And so you either need to slice it really, really thin, or you need to massage the kale with salt and a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of salt and a little bit of olive oil to kind of to break down the fibrous nature of it. Um, but some people miss that memo. And so, you know, you end up with, you end up with big chunks of really chewy, really fibrous leaf, and it's like, no, that's not what a kale salad's supposed to be like. That's oh, that is great. And on the the subject of kale, do you enjoy kale salad? Oh yeah, I okay. love kale salads, and and you know, and uh, yeah, and, and as I say, I was one of the one of the first people to write about them. I had, I think, the first time I had it was up in Santa Barbara, and somebody. And I was at a, it was at a conference, a food conference. I think, I believe it was edible, the edible magazine oh, series and they had a dine around and somebody had fixed it and it was like, what is this stuff? <laughs> this is delicious. It's kale. No, it is not kale. Cause I'd always thought of kale. I mean, I've always loved kale, but I loved it as a braising green, you know, and you cook it low and slow with hopefully with a lot of pork and, you know, and it, it becomes really sweet and creamy and caramelized. Uh, but this was something completely different. But again, the whole the whole trick is is getting around getting around that that kind of chewy fibrousness of it. 
Right, right. Speaking of trends, I have a wonderful question in from uh, the Kitchen Chat guest, Chef Eric Lenlard. He actually made the royal pastry, or he's a master pâtissier, but also uh-huh. made the uh, wedding cake for Prince Charles and Camilla. And wow. when, yeah, when I let him know that you're going to be on the show, he said, oh, please ask Russ, what will be the next big trend in baking in the U.S.? He said, we inherited cupcakes, because he's in London. He said, we inherited cupcakes, whoopie pies, and cronuts last year from the U.S. And he's just wondering which new craze uh, that they should be expecting to hit uh, in London from the U.S. baking world, so he can get ready for that. If I had to you know, like bet on one, the thing that we're seeing here in Southern California is... Well, there's there, uh, there's two answers to that. Well, the, th- the the thing that we're seeing here in California is a real dearth of classic pastry shops, hmm. of of French pastries and uh, classic Italian pastries or European pastries. What we're seeing is a whole whole bunch of home pastries, home style pastries that have been elevated. So you get it's kind of the Nancy Silverton effect, um, and there are other people who are doing that. Where you know it's taking a concept or something that's conceptually familiar from our childhood that we really liked and then figuring out how to make the absolute best version of it. And you know what? It's like a lot of those things are absolutely positively delicious. And they're just, you know, they really are. If you take care with them and you really, you know, pay attention to the details, they're, they're great pastries. Um, but they're not the kinds of things that you're going to find in a, you know, like in a, in a, in a Parisian patissier. Um, but I also have, having said that, I think that whenever there is a dearth of something, somebody's going to rush in and fill it. Hmm. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see, you know, in the next two years, uh, in here in Southern California, somebody like a, a Michelle Richard or a Sherry, I mean, Sherry Yard, uh, who was, for many, 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 many years, uh, the pastry, the head of all of the pastries for all of Wolfgang Puck's restaurants, she's she's getting ready to open her own bake shop, and I wouldn't be at, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a return to more technical, um, more uh, classic pastries. Oh, just, as, just kind of as a reaction to what we have so much of now. Oh, well, I'm sure Chef Eric will love to hear that. <laughs> that yeah, they usually are. <laughs> <laughs> that is exciting. You know, Louise lives in L.A., and she wrote in a question. She said, if you live in L.A. and want to do a full week of best of ethnic foods, where would you go? Oh, my goodness. Well, <laughs> um that's such a hard question because you could almost spend, I mean, in some of our ethnic centers, you could almost spend a full week in each one. Wow. <laughs> um, you could spend a full week in, in Westminster without any problem whatsoever, eating nothing but Vietnamese food. Mm. You could spend a full week in Koreatown eating nothing but Korean food. You could spend a full week in Gardena or up in Sautel eating nothing but Japanese food. Um, you know, like a real ethnic tour of Southern California, you know, the, the, probably the best thing for her to do would be on our website. Our restaurant critic is named Jonathan Gold, and, uh, and he every year chooses his 101 best restaurants. And, it, and he usually 
it's it's not just the usual suspects. He's very, 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 very good. In fact, probably one of the best in the country at seeking out various ethnic restaurants as well as the best of the ethnic restaurants. I mean, and then the San Gabriel Valley for Chinese food. I, you know, can't 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 go without uh, mentioning them. And we've got a map. There's a locator map of all of the 101 restaurants, and so she can go through and she could pick, you know, one Japanese, one Vietnamese, one Chinese, one Mexican, one Central American, one Korean, one, you know, it's almost like you name it. Oh, that's you'll, you'll, you'll find it here. What a great resource! And you could almost do an alphabetic tour by cuisine, you know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that oh, that sounds fun. Well, Louise, you know where to Spend go. A lot now. of time on the freeway. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yes, it's L.A., of course. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, another question that came in from our dear friend Meredith Deeds. She said to be sure... Our mutual friend. Yes. (laughs) Our dear mutual friend Meredith Deeds. Yes. She said, be sure and ask Russ about his famous dry brining technique for turkey... And if he uses it on other types of roast, and she put a little P.S., I love his turkey recipe for Thanksgiving, so I'm going to have to hear about that. (laughs) So what is this? The the dry brine turkey is something that I learned about, oh, I started writing about it maybe six or seven years ago, and it came about through, there was a woman who was a wonderful chef in San Francisco named Judy Rogers, and she had a she had a great restaurant called Zuni Cafe, one of the San Francisco classics. And I was talking to her. We should one of her the hallmarks of her cooking was that whenever whenever she got proteins into the kitchen, whether it was duck or beef or chicken or you know her her, her roast chicken was was uh, was was really really famous. Uh, the first thing she did was salt them and then store them. And and I had done a story about it. I had found that it, you know, like with chicken and with things like that, it made a really a huge difference in flavor without being excessively salty or even detectably salty. It improved the texture of the meat. It was uh, it was moister but firmer. Uh, and and I asked her if she, you know, when when the holidays came around, I asked if she, I asked her if she'd ever done it with turkey, and she said. Actually, I never have, but let me know how it works. And so I tried it with turkey, and it was amazing. And I was somebody who had always been a wet briner for turkey, you know, and, and that, that works and it keeps the, the, the meat moist. But first you have to, you know, first you have to somehow juggle a big old bucket full of salt <laughs> brine with a turkey in it for, for three days or four days or whatever. Right. And then also when you, when you wet brine, sometimes the, the meat and well, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say always the meat is, is excessively moist sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, like it almost squishes when you slice it. When I tried dry brining, the meat stays firm. It's like a, a firm muscle, but it's moist. It doesn't dry out, and it's evenly seasoned all the way through. And, and it's, it's a really, 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 really simple technique. I mean, basically what you do is you sprinkle a tablespoon of salt for every five pounds of, of bird. Okay. So like a 20-pound bird, you would use about a quarter cup of salt. And do you use kosher sea salt or what kind of? Salt? I use kosher, yeah, yeah, kosher, okay. kosher for the for the for the measurement, um, and then and then you you put it in a plastic bag, you seal it in a plastic bag, and you refrigerate it for three days, and every you know every morning pull it out and just kind of rub it to redistribute the salt, hmm. and the the last day, pull it out of the refrigerator, take it out of the bag, pat it dry, 
and then put it back in the refrigerator for a couple of hours to air dry. And then you roast it just as you normally would. And uh, it, it, it's, the, it, it's the best turkey I'll ever eat. And I've had every year literally hundreds of emails from readers uh, attesting to that. Wow, I am going to try that this year, and I will document it on video, listeners. So it was it was one that. of uh, it was one of Food Fifty Two's genius recipes. Oh, so. I love that, and you are a genius. Have you always been a genius in the in the kitchen, Russ? How did oh, your uh, cooking evolve? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It, you know the the definition of an experienced cook is one who's who's already made all the mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly haven't made all of them. I'm still making them constantly, but I've made enough. I've, I've made enough of them, and, and hopefully learned from them that I, my batting average has improved. Oh, that is great. Um, and Laura Badish wrote in and said, "What did you have for breakfast? What did you make for breakfast this morning?" I'm not a creative breakfast person. Okay. Um, my wife and I. I mean, it's like I have to because I have to go to you know I have to be at work early. I have to be on the train to you know to get to work, and so we have uh, at this time of year we have um, we usually have like a graham crack a couple graham crackers spread with uh, almond butter and and bananas and yogurt with some kind of either fresh fruit or jam. Right now we're using up this summer's uh, homemade fig jam. Oh, and, oh wow! And a shakerado, and a shakerado is uh, a shot of espresso milk and ice and you put them in a cocktail shaker and shake it so that it, emuls- it foams and emulsifies and it's just delicious it's a, it's a it's a cold espresso drink and it's just delicious a shakerado i love that i think that's going to be the new trend with the coffee forget the <laughs> butter and the coffee have a shakerado <laughs> i love that and so you make your own jams and you made a fig jam then that you've been using yeah, yeah, yeah. I've dabbled in jam making for years and years and years, and I go through I go through waves. You know, sometimes I'll make a lot of jams, and then you know my cupboard gets full, and it's like, oh, we don't eat that much jam, and what are we gonna do? <laughs> so I'll, I'll quit making so much for a little while, and then I'll get started again and making it. And it, it's really rewarding. I really enjoy it. Oh, that is great. Now, who would you say in the culinary world most inspired you? throughout your journey? Oh, well, I mean, it, it, there, there are several people who've been, you know, landmark people for me. Um, oh, I probably start with Ruth Reichel, who, who was the one who hired me at the times and kind of gave me the confidence that I could, that I could write on, on her level or, you know, or approaching her level or at least be worthy of her uh-huh. and let me do those kinds of stories. I mean, Julia Child was certainly was certainly a huge influence, not necessarily for her cookbooks, but because of who she was. Mm-hmm. She was a dear friend and just an absolutely inspiring human being. Oh. Um, I mean, Julia Child is who I want to be when I grow up. Oh. Endlessly curious, just you know. I love uh, that. Uh, Julia Child uh, is who I want Marta to be when I grow up. That is. And uh, do you have any special stories you can share about Julia? I love hearing stories about Julia. I just oh have the utmost respect. Oh, of, gosh. Yeah. Um, well, this is more a story about me, uh, but it's also a story about Julia. Um, 
way back in the day, I think it, was, it must have been 20 years ago, and I was asked to speak uh, on food writing at the, IAC, at the International Association of Culinary Professionals Conference. And it was the first time I'd been asked to do that. And I was feeling very, very full of myself, you know, that I'm going to lecture on food writing. Whoa, how cool is, how cool am I? And I got up on the dais and we were, we were you know, all the other panelists and we were exchanging, you know, virtual high fives with ourselves because we were so cool to be up there on the panel. And I looked down and sitting right in front of me with a notebook open Pan in hand, looking up expectantly, was Julia Child. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, what in the world could I possibly say about food writing that would hold Julia Child's attention? I am, I'm a fraud. <laughs> I, almost, I almost ran out of the room crying. Oh, no. she, was, she was always, she, she was so, that was how she was. She was always... Uh, anxious to learn, you know, and she was always wanting to better herself and just fascinated by other people and by cooking and writing. Wow. And she lived in Santa Barbara. So were you able to visit with her much? Do you have any fond memories? Yeah. Yeah. She spent the last, she spent the last six or seven years of her life in uh, Montecito, which is a small town south of Santa Barbara in in a retirement community there. And my wife and I got up to see her quite often. Every time I was driving north, I'd always stop in and have lunch or do whatever. And we'd make special trips. And I remember the first, it's another funny Julia story, but the first time we went up, we picked her up. We were going to take her out to dinner. It was the first time that after she had moved into into her, the retirement community. And, uh, and it was a very nice retirement community, obviously. Oh, yeah. uh, but it was kind of, you know, the rooms were a little small and, you know, the, the facilities um she loved it because they served really great bacon every morning for breakfast (laughs) she got in the car and my wife my wife said oh julia this is you know this is um this is such a great apartment you must be so happy here and she said well you know it's my they're they're sweet little digs but it's the kind of place they take you out feet first Yeah, it was so oh, Julia. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. And I think I'd read, didn't you write a little article, or big article rather, um, after the Julie and Julia movie came out? Um, yeah. Yeah. Did, do you feel? Yeah, that what? was, I, I had found, I had found Julie Powell's uh, blog online and, and uh, wanted to write something about it because I thought it was very, very cool. Yeah. Um, I thought it really worked as a, I mean, it was something, at that point, blogs were mostly, they were just like newspaper stories or something. It wasn't, people hadn't figured out what the form could be. Hmm. And she was doing a great job of just like these really tightly written, very funny, very human like a periodic novel almost. And, uh, and so I printed it, I, I printed it out and, uh, I was going to do a story on it. So I took it up to Julia and, and asked her to, to, to read it because I, I wanted to have, you know, obviously it was Julie, Julia. I wanted to have right. her comment on it and Julia never responded. And, yeah. you know, and so I waited and I waited and finally I called her back and I said, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Julia, but I'm on deadline. You know, can we talk about this thing? And she said, well, you know, I'd, Honestly, I would rather not say anything about it. I said, really? Why? <laughs> and she said, well, I just don't think she's very serious. Do you? 
Hmm. And she said, I spent 10 years writing that cookbook, making sure that all of those recipes worked as well as they possibly could. And millions of people have had nothing but success with those recipes. Hmm. And if she's having trouble with my recipes, it must be because she's just not a very serious cook. Interesting. And it was it was so revealing because it was you know even even Julia Child well into being Jul- Dame Julia you know uh, she still had her professional pride and she yes. she was she was offended that someone would have trouble with her cookbook or have trouble with her recipes and then would write about it. Oh, and that was that was the that was the that was the impetus behind the incident in the story where. Julie Powell finds out that Julia Child doesn't like her, and she kind of collapses. They they took some liberties with it. It wasn't the Wall Street Journal reporter who had called. It was me, and I never told her that Julia didn't didn't like her because Julia had asked me not to. Julia didn't want to hurt her feelings, and had asked me not to say anything about it. But but I think she found out through back channels. Oh my goodness! Well, I just that I loved that movie. Just learning more about Julia's life and mm-hmm. and just seeing the incredible experiences. And and she's just such an inspiration to me too. That you're never too old to start something new. And thus my culinary journey. Absolutely. So it's yeah. just yeah. She was in her forties when she published Mastering. It was wow. you know. Yeah, that oh, that's so amazing, and what a, what an incredible honor that that you two were friends. You know, that's so yeah. treasured, so well, treasured. Well, you know, I've I've been really lucky in my career, and you know, have had have have won awards and stuff like that. But the, one of the things that I'll always treasure was that um, after Julia died, uh, her family chose to read my appreciation of her at their private service. Oh. And I thought that was just, you know, you can't replace that. Oh, that is it's what I'd say a hug from heaven. Wow. Yep. That that is just amazing. Oh my goodness. And and looking forward, do you have any other books that you're working on? And I want to briefly just let the listeners know about the two books, How to Read a French Fry and How to Pick a Peach. And is there a trilogy? Is there a third <laughs> third one in the works we should all know about? Not at this point. You know, maybe maybe uh, maybe sometime down the road. Uh, you know, the, the modern the modern life of a food editor. It's like I'm I'm working eleven hours a day now, and it, oh. and there's just absolutely no time to do that. But I am building up a database of recipes, and I've got ideas that I might want to do sometime down the road. Oh, great! And real quickly, what is this? How to read a French fry? <laughs> that title has just really intrigued me. What was well, the... The, two, the the two books are related. Um, uh, and, and how to read a French fry came about because I was always getting questions from readers about recipes, and usually fairly pointed questions. Um, and not often, you know, but, but it, typically, you know, someone would say, "I I tried your recipe for uh, roast lamb with rosemary." And it was the worst thing I've ever tasted. And I say, really? You know, it's like, I love that. And when we tested it in the test kitchen, people love that. Let's walk through the steps and find out what, what went wrong. And they start out by saying, well, my husband won't eat lamb, so I used chicken. Oh, no. And, and I couldn't find any rosemary, so I used this. And, and, and so I wanted to. Uh, uh, Harold McGee had already written a, a very, very good book about science and cooking at that point, but it was really geared towards, um, toward, toward, it was uh, explaining cooking to a scientist. 
Um, and I wanted to do a book that used science to basic science to explain cooking to cooks. Huh. Um, and so it's, so it's very, very much, um, you know, very basic levels of science, but it, it, it does explain, you know, like why steaming is different than roasting and why boiling is different than both and frying and, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, it was, it was the right book at the right time. And, you know, I got, got the right push behind it from, you know, to, ended up on fresh air and all of that. And it sold through four printings in two weeks or in a, wow. in a month, literally in a month. And, wow. uh, and it's still in print almost 15 years later. Oh, I love that. And I'm going to pick up a copy of that. And I can't wait to see what your third book will be as well. And I just so appreciate Russ and the listeners do too. The, the wonderful time you've spent with us here today on Kitchen Chat. I am just truly so honored. Um, oh, well, thank and you. And thank you for, thank you for thinking of me. I really appreciate it. And, oh. um, I, I love to talk about cooking. So. Oh, well, it's, this all, is it's just, always a pleasure. Oh, well, this is so much fun. And listeners, please be sure and look at the links I'm going to leave on the website to connect with Russ. He is on Twitter. I follow him. It's at Russ underscore Parsons and the number one. Also check out his Facebook as well as LA Times Food. Dot com and I'll make sure I have those links and listeners I know it can these days can be very very busy for you but please always remember to just take the time and savor the day thanks for joining Margaret for kitchen chat today Margaret would be so excited for you to drop by and visit with her at kitchenchat.info where you'll enjoy podcasts blogs recipes tips from chefs and even great giveaways She invites you to share your recipes and kitchen stories, too. As Margaret always says, savor the day.